0: 1 Corinthians chapter 1, picking up in verse 10, continuing our study of Paul's letter to the church of Corinth. I'm going to read in verse 10 and down through verse 17. Where Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but besides that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You know, a couple of months ago, we were working our way through the book of Ephesians, just sort of in survey form and And you might remember that we got to Ephesians chapter 4, if you were here for that, and where Paul in, in the book of Ephesians transitions and says to them, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you or beseech you, or I'm pleading with you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And I bring that up because I want to remind you that Paul writes many times and most times in a certain pattern. He always gives us teaching about our identity, the doctrines that we believe, who we are in Christ before he moves on to the practical part of how we live. So like in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul teaches them about the church and the purpose of the church and that the church exists ultimately as the highest evidence of the display of the wisdom and glory of God and because of that, he says, therefore, I'm pleading with you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So it's because of who they are in the church that he appeals to them to live a certain way. And so when we get to this verse in chapter 10 of, uh, or, or verse 10 of chapter 1 in the book of Corinthians, Paul is essentially doing the same thing. He's going to begin to deal with issues in the church. But first, remember, in the last six weeks, we walked through his introduction to the church where he did the same thing he did in Ephesians, and he introduced them to who they were. Remember that they're the church, the called out ones. They're sanctified in Christ. They're called to be saints. They call Jesus Lord. They have all these benefits of experiencing the grace of God being gifted for every good work, and ultimately being sure of their salvation is sealed up for them in heaven. So he gives them all this information about their identity before he's going to begin dealing with all the problems in the church concerning how they live. And the church at Corinth was plagued, and that's an understatement, with problems in the church. There were all sorts of errors, and really the remainder of this book is just a list where Paul's working his way through all the errors that were plaguing the church. And let me just give them to you today real quick, just by summary of what we're going to be dealing with in the weeks and months ahead. But it begins like this in chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through chapter 4, verse 21. Easily the biggest section of the book of 1 Corinthians, he deals with the errors in the church concerning division. In chapter 5, all the way through chapter 6, verse 20, through the end, he deals with errors concerning immorality in the church. In chapter 7, he deals with errors concerning marriage. In chapter 8, all the way through the beginning of chapter 11, he deals with errors in Christian liberty. In chapter 11, verse 2, all the way through the end of that chapter, when I'll read some of these later for us, he deals with errors concerning the Lord's Supper. And they had some serious problems concerning that. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, he deals with the errors concerning the spiritual gifts. In chapter 15, errors concerning the resurrection of Christ. In chapter 16, errors concerning money. It's just one thing after the other. And if you listen to that list of things I gave you and you understood even the details of some of them, for instance, when he deals in chapter 5 with issues of morality, the first thing he deals with is an issue of incest in the church which has been accepted by the church and even is being celebrated by the church. That's a big deal. When you think about errors concerning The Lord's Supper, he tells us in chapter 11 that that they're coming together. When they come together, some people get nothing. Some people are coming together, they're feasting at the service, and some people are even coming together and drinking so much wine that they're getting drunk at church at the Lord's Supper. It's a big deal. I mean, all these things are, are sort of big things. Chapter 15, errors concerning the resurrection, where he tells us that if it's not for the resurrection, our faith is in vain and all of us are lost and we should be pitied. The world should look at us and think we're pathetic. I mean, the resurrection's a huge deal. These are all big things. But the one thing that he begins with and the thing that he actually spends the most time with before he moves on to any of these other things is the issue of division in the church. And I think that that should say something to us about the importance of the subject that he's going to be dealing with. He deals with it first. And if I had the time this morning, and and I'm sure that many of you could do the same, we could share testimonies about division we've experienced in the church. I mean, I I could tell you stories about when I was a kid. I can remember growing up in, in the home of a pastor. I can remember divisions in the church that caused unbelievable wreckage in our home. Now, I've always thought it was interesting, you know, that for a pastor, I don't know if you've ever considered that the church really is our life and, and things that are little to you seem big to us and we go home and think about them all week and you go to work on Monday and don't think about them until Sunday. But I can remember go, growing up and things just happening in the church that just blew us up as a family They were hard to deal with. And I can remember as, as a as a young man heading towards the ministry Dealing with an issue in our, our home church that we grew up in, just before I left for seminary, that was one of the most difficult things I've ever seen and caused great division in the church. And I can, as a pastor, give you testimonies about divisions within the churches that I've led. Thankfully, I don't think, and I'm not saying this to let you off the hook, I just think it's true that we haven't had any great division in the past seven years. Praise God for that. That's good news. But the issue of division is important, and I want to introduce you to it here in these verses because... Really, we're not going to deal with the issue of division all the way through the the first four chapters, but it'll appear over and over again. So I just want to kind of give you an overview of the problem of division that Paul's dealing with here. And I want to do it by asking four questions and then we'll answer them in order. If you're a note keeper, try to keep up, but I'll, I'll repeat these things as we go several times and you can catch up. I'm going to give you the four questions now and then we'll just begin answering them. Question number one is what is the specific problem Paul is addressing in these verses? That should be easy enough to guess because I've said it 20 times already. Number two, what is the root cause of the problem? Number three, how does this apply to us today? Why does it matter for me today? And then lastly, what's the remedy for the problem for them And for us. And so let's just start answering the questions. The first question, what is the specific problem Paul's addressing in these verses? And it's not hard to identify the specific problem because Paul calls it out specifically in verse 11. Where he says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Or there's fighting among them. They're they're dividing. And then he gets even more specific in verse 12. And he says, what I mean is this. And he's going to tell us exactly what's going on. Listen to it. What I mean is this, that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And so they were dividing themselves up, and and they're dividing themselves up on on this issue of personalities in the church, or people in the church. There's one group of people, and every church that's young enough to know its founder has this issue. There's one group of people who will always say, I'm with the guy who started this whole thing. Paul was the founder of the church at Corinth, and so there's some people there who say, only Paul, only what Paul taught. And then there's poor Apollos, and I had this experience in my own life at the first church I pastored, who came in following a large personality that people revered, and there's Apollos coming in after Paul to become the pastor, and Thankfully, there's some who are now saying to him that we support you and we love you, but also there's a problem in that there's some people saying, well, forget what Paul said. Now, I'm with Apollos. It's all about Apollos. And then there were those in the church who, no doubt, were Jewish converts who had come out of Judaism and who had been saved and who had heard the gospel and believed the gospel and were following Christ. And they said, no, Cephas is our leader. And Cephas is just, for whatever reason, the way that Paul always refers to Peter. And so they say, no, it's the Apostle Peter for us. And then there's this last group who seems like the right group, but I think they're the worst group of all. And this is the group who says, no, just Jesus for me. And I've met some people like this in the past 15 years. That it doesn't matter what the pastor says, doesn't matter what the Sunday school teacher says. It doesn't matter what anybody says. They'll never listen to any man. And their reasoning is, well, I'm just following Jesus. I don't follow men. And I want you to understand that in a sense, that's absolutely correct. We'll return to that later. But in the spirit in which Paul places it here, in the context he's placing it here, these are those self-righteous people that say, it's just Jesus for me. You don't have anything for me, pastor. You don't have anything for me, teacher. Just Jesus for me. So you've got all these divisions in the church. And based on what Paul says, those divisions that started in people's hearts have now spilled over into the public. And the people are actually fighting with each other over who the most important leader is. And so the second question is, what is the root cause of this problem? Because the problem is not hard to see, but what's causing it? And if we look a little closer, I think we can see the root cause of the problem. Look at verse 12 again. Paul says, what I mean, after saying that it's been reported, he's heard there's quarreling, he says, what I mean is that each one of you says. Now, there's a hint right there, isn't there? Each one of you, individually. I mean, when we gather as a church, are we here as individuals? Are we here as a church? I mean, we could correct a million errors in the church if we just get this right. As a church we've been called out and we've been called together as a church. It's hard for us to understand that. I mean, how many times have you said and have I said, leaving a church service, I'm not sure I got anything out of that at all. Well, that might have some meaning if it was about you. But since it's not about you individually and it's about the church corporately and ultimately about Christ, that doesn't matter at all. But he says, each one of you. And then he says, I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. And notice that Paul's just pointing to their individuality. The church of Corinth had really become a church, and this is where my title of my message came from, where it was every man for himself. You know, just... It's all about me, my individual desires, my pleasures. And to put it simply, the people of the church, the root cause of all these issues of division and otherwise was that the people of the church were selfish. These are selfish people. And I hope that we can realize today that the the root cause is the same for us anytime we see fighting, anytime we see... division, the root cause is always the issue of selfishness. Have you ever thought about that? And why do we fight? If we see two people fighting, they're fighting, it's a battle ultimately of the will. Right? I mean, think about it. I used to have a mentor who used to say to me, it's always stuck with me, and, and, and sometimes to a fault, for those of you who know me, you know this, is True. He used to say to me, Pastor, it's okay to disagree so long as we don't become disagreeable. And what he was saying is it's okay to disagree, and it is okay to disagree. I mean, there's disagreements in this church. There's some big disagreements in this church that I hope Jesus will soon return and settle, like the issue of should you root for the nationals or the Orioles? <laughs> and anybody who really I don't know, anybody anybody's heart's right roots for the Orioles. You know? I mean, they are the home team. Nationals don't even play in Maryland. Anyway, but there's... It's okay to disagree. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to disagree about things that have meaning, not things like baseball. It's okay to disagree. But it's never okay to fight and be disagreeable. Because the moment that we start fighting with one another, the moment that we start quarreling with one another, the moment we start dividing with one another, what we're doing there is we're displaying that that my own selfish ambitions and desires have become more important than the person standing in front of me. That I want to win. That this is about me. And James makes it clear in James chapter 4. Listen to this. James chapter 4, verse 1, 2, and 3. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, here you go. If you want to know why people fight, here it is. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And what does he mean there? Your passions. Your desire, the things inside of you are are at war within you. He says you desire... And you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And for the sake of time, understand that what James is saying there is that what causes quarrels and fights, what causes you to have all of these issues in your life, what causes you to experience unanswered prayers from God is your selfishness selfishness is at the root of all of this. They're always the result of selfishness. I mean, I could say, again, I had to be careful not to want to go down this road in this sermon, but I really could tell you stories and stories and stories about fights and divisions in church. I feel like the Lord gave me a double measure of that in the first six years or seven years of my ministry. I could tell you some things that would blow your mind. Some things that were small, some things that were big, some things that were private, some things that were public. But in all my experience with quarrels and division and divisiveness in the church, it's interesting, as I thought about it this week, that I've never seen anybody argue or divide over an issue in the Bible. In all those years, I've never seen anybody have an issue where there was division or quarreling or fighting over an important theological matter. Like, by the way, I'm happy to divide with, with people on the issue of whether or not Jesus is God in the flesh. Whether or not the, the, the gospel is exclusive. Whether there's one way to heaven. I mean, I, we can divide over those things, and we should. Is there one God? Yes, we should divide over that if we have to. But I've never seen division in the church ever come down to biblical issues or theological issues. Every single instance I could think of this week as I thought through it over and over again, as I thought through the controversies and the divisions and the fighting, every time it boils down to one thing, and that's that someone didn't get their way. You think through all the divisions you've ever seen in the church, or for that matter in your life, and ask yourself, what was at the heart of it? And I think you'll come to the same conclusion that in the end, It was because someone didn't get their way. And so now, if we know the root cause of the problem is selfishness, let's answer the third question. Why does this apply to us today? How does it apply to us today? Why does it matter to us today? And I think that it applies to us today because we can see it playing out in our day-to-day lives. I think we see the same struggle inside the church, but also outside the church. I think we see it in our own lives. Like, we all struggle with selfishness. I mean, I feel like we should take a vote. Like, should we just admit it? We all struggle with self. We all do. And that's the root of all of our problems. I mean, like, how many of you have more than one kid? You know, like, you can give testimony. We could have a support group about this. Right? Like, if you put my kids in the car together and close the doors and start the car before we get onto Burntwoods Road. And I'm telling you, this is true. Before we get to Burntwoods Road, there will be a fight in my car. I don't understand how it happens so quickly. and It always happens. Everybody can be in a good mood, laughing. Yeah, we're going to get ice cream. Something's awesome. You know, we're happy. Put them in the car, sit them next to each other. Boom, they're fighting. And every single time, it's the same thing in the end. Somebody didn't get their way. I mean, it's not just in the church. It applies to every area of our life. If there's there's fights and there's quarrels in your workplace, do you know what's at the cause of them? Somebody didn't get their way. If it's that way with your friends, if you're struggling, if you're fighting with your friends or in your relationships... There's fights and there's quarrels. Somebody didn't get their way. If it's in our marriage, I mean, I know none of you ever fight with your spouse. No, no, Mike, never, right? It's never happened. But if it did, it'd be because somebody didn't get their way. You know, just over and over again. It's just because of this issue of selfishness. And it applies to us because it's happening in every part of our lives. This issue of, I want my way no matter what. And that's the same thing that was happening in the church there when they were saying, I'm following Paul, I'm following Apollos, I'm following Cephas, I'm following Christ. They were saying that what I want is more important than what anybody else wants. And so we understand the problem. They're quarreling over their leaders. And Paul's going to spend four chapters dealing with all the issues that, that surround this problem, but they're quarreling with their leaders. We understand the root cause, that people are focused on their own selfish desires, and we understand, I hope, how it applies to us. Are we good on that one? That's important. Like, we good that we're all selfish, ultimately, in some form or another? So the last question is, what is the remedy to the problem? What's the remedy to the problem in the church at Corinth and in our own lives? And Paul gives us the remedy in the form of a rhetorical question at the beginning of verse 13. Look at it. Where after he's identified the problem and the cause of the problem, he begins to give us the solution to the problem by asking a simple question Is Christ divided? And now on the surface, that seems like an easy question to answer. And we wonder how that could apply to the situation. But listen to what he goes on to say. He makes it clear. Is Christ divided? Or was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And the point that Paul's making in these verses, I think it's abundantly clear. The reason he asks the question and the reason he uses himself as an example is to make the point that only Jesus is meant to be followed as the, the focus of our faith. Only him. We're to follow Jesus. We don't follow Paul. We don't follow Apollos. We don't follow Brian. We don't follow Charles Stanley. We follow Jesus. He's meant to be our ultimate example. Isn't that what it means, by the way, to follow? To just do the things that you see that person doing? I mean, if I put you in a car and tell you to follow me uh, to... Where do you want to take me to lunch today? You name it. All right. If I tell you to follow me there or you tell me to follow you there, then what do I do when I'm following you? You turn left. What do I do? I turn left. You turn right. I turn right. So the idea of following. So he's saying, is this about Christ or about some man? I mean, give, give me the answer, church. Is this about Christ or is it about some man? It's about Christ. So, so the remedy, the remedy for the behavior, is that we're dealing with, the remedy for all this quarreling and divisions is to focus once again our attention on Jesus and follow Jesus. That's the remedy to a selfish life. In fact, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 as we begin to close and we're going to observe the Lord's Supper here in a minute. But I had Pastor Nick read uh, this earlier. I want to read a part of it to you again. Because I want you to understand that following Jesus is the remedy for selfishness. For selfish behavior that leads to fighting and quarreling. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. And listen to these verses. Don't just listen to me read. Don't listen to the cadence or volume of my voice. But look at the verses. Listen to the verses. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he's appealing to them for unity, the opposite of division. He's appealing to them to be unified with one another. In verse 3 he says, And do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interest." but also to the interest of others. And just stop right there for just a moment. And let me make an observation here that's important because I think in those verses, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, Philippians chapter 2, if, if, if we were living our lives in complete submission to those words, there would never be another quarrel or fight between two human beings ever. I mean, just listen to it again. Do nothing... From selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I mean, just think of it, that that's the way to end a fight, isn't it? I mean, and how, how many of you have ever done that in your marriage? I'm not making a joke, I'm trying to be serious and think of a practical example. How many of you just realize that we're just going to keep fighting about this unless I decide in this moment that the person standing in front of me is more important than what I want? That's how you stop a fight. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but the interest of others. But then he goes on, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I don't care much for that way of translating it. I like the more traditional ways that say, literally, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So be like Jesus. That's the point, right? Let's be like Jesus. And then he goes on to give us an example of what Jesus was like. Verse 6, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul's appeal to our or for our unity is wrapped up in the example of Christ, who became the ultimate example of humility and sacrifice, and placing the needs of others over and above his own glory. Even when you think about that, if you want a remedy for the things you struggle with in your life, the selfish. Desires of our own hearts. The remedy is simple. Humbly pursue being like Jesus, and that'll put an end.